0: Welcome to Uninhibited, a podcast with the mission to discuss taboo, multicultural, multi-generational, and multi-layered topics that matter to women. My name is Dr. Mukunda Abdulbaki. I am an Ivy League-trained OBGYN practicing medicine in rural America. I am married and raising three dynamic African-American boys. I am a mother, a career professional, a part of Generation X, and so much more. I bring to the table a true desire for social justice that informs my opinions, and my hope is that this podcast will open conversations, question beliefs, and be transformative. Thank you for joining us um, at Uninhibited. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul-Baki, and we are coming back from a two-part podcast with Mrs. Erica Turnipseed. She is a writer, educator, and lives with her family in D.C., and in honor of so many women who have experienced uh, maternal morbidity and mortality uh, outcomes that they weren't expecting, and especially with the rates of black maternal morbidity and mortality being as high as they are in this country, we've focused the segment on Erica and her story of of dealing with a uh, severe health condition and the outcomes and so from the first episode of the podcast, we left off with. Um, her health and um, requiring um, an emergency cesarean section. And now, what we're going to do is just pick up with uh, Erica waking up after the surgery.
1: Sure. So, you know, I, I awakened to being alive, which I was grateful for, but also and seeing my family, um, and they mm-hmm. were happy to see my eyes open. And also having some pretty extreme effects from the, the surgery that was done quickly and that was done because of the severity of my issues, and also being having hives all over because of the um, the transfusion of blood platelets that I required so it was it was a pretty eventful awakening um, in that sense, and I also awakened not knowing if if our daughter was alive or not, because I had been told that she might live minutes to hours and it had been several hours, um, you know, since I first um, went under general anesthesia. So I I didn't know what the case was. I did learn, thankfully, that she was alive, that she was born alive, that she was still alive. And she was named Grace Iodele. Um, Iodele is, is a Yoruba word for joy enters our home. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, I was just grateful to know that, and saw a picture of her, but ached to see her. Right? I, I, I mm-hmm. had, I didn't Definitely. have the opportunity to see her. Um, you know, it wasn't until several hours later, when I was settled in my room in ICU, and I had met my night nurse, who was, I'm convinced, a guardian angel. Um, <laughs> you know, she. I explained to her. All those feelings that I was feeling that I just couldn't share with anyone else or there wasn't any time or space to share how, how much I was hurting about what was going on. But She was like the first person who listened to me and who, who seemed to have some compassion outside of my family for what was going on. And, and she was, had a, a, an understanding of that because of her, her professional um, area she said you know i'll take you down to see her in the NICU on my break which her break wouldn't come until two in the morning which i, I was just stunned and so grateful that she would take her break to f- it to use it in service of me right and 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 my need to see my daughter i just was praying that she would still be alive at that point and she yeah and uh you know I saw her. um, It was just such a rush of of emotions to see her, to see her one pound body. She was, you know, I think actually 15 and a half ounces. Um, So she had experienced some restricted growth while she was in utero uh, because she should have been a little larger than that for for that um, gestational age of just about 24 weeks. but she was a little perfect person who was attached to everything known to humankind.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, I had a lot of experiences, including, you know, some spiritual understanding of, of what was going on, which gave me some comfort. Um, but I also, you know, just hurt for the fact that she was on the outside instead of on the inside. And so hurt the fact that she was outside of my body meant she was really ill um, and she was the uh, you know, I had to go back up to my room and what happened in the intervening time was I was pulled between my desire to mother her from afar and to at the very least know what was going on with her and being a, uh, a patient, a very ill patient at the hospital myself, right? Um, I was in, when I was in the... So the
0: fight for you wasn't over just because you delivered, you were still experiencing severe health problems.
1: Well, my blood pressure was still high. It was still Mm -hmm. elevated. I was still, you know, my blood platelets were still low. Um, My liver enzymes were still... um, I don't know if they're high or low. High. Or high.
0: They should be, high. well, right. they should not be high, but in this, in having help, the liver enzymes are elevated.
1: Right. So I was, I guess my numbers were starting to trend back toward normal, but, but, you know, in the few days, those first couple of days, they were still elevated. And then the big question was why, why did this happen to me? Um, and because I was at a major teaching hospital, my story became the talk of the town. Um, I learned this on a few levels. I learned this um, because one of my dear friends who you know as well, um, she's, she's a, a doctor as well, Tanya ruff She came um, to see me and to talk to my OBGYN and to others and to really advocate for me both from the, the perspective of, you know, having a, a deep understanding of the medical issues that I was looking at, but also just making sure that I wasn't seen as a curiosity Um, because I I was certainly experiencing that, you know, I I had so many people coming into the room, medical students and interns and residents on all of all levels, even people who were outside of the OBGYN um, residency program, right? People were interested in me from every Perspective, and I don't begrudge them for wanting to know more. But it was also important for 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 Tanya to express, and I'll never know exactly who, who all she spoke
0: to, but she did speak to. <laughs> I'm sure Tanya yeah. spoke to whoever she needed to right. speak to. <laughs> to
1: to let them know that I'm a, a person, right? So I, I'm not just a case. First
0: and foremost, yes. Right. Be, beyond um, our educational needs or need to, uh, you know we need information to serve you, but at some point it does become, it can, especially in academic centers, can feel like uh, a circus.
1: Right, and and that was certainly happening. Um, you know, one person would come in and look at my sutures and ask me the battery of questions, and then halfway through me talking to that person, someone else would walk in, and, you know, that's, that's uncomfortable to – to have people, you know, looking at intimate parts of your body, right? And and then some, yeah. have someone else walk into the room. And uh, as if they were supposed to be there, you're surprised to see them. And then, you know, they're asking the same set of questions. And that was happening continuously. So, uh, you know, Tanya certainly helped with that. Um, another uh, woman who was actually a fellow classmate of mine and who is a, an OBGYN resident at the time, she came and saw me uh, and she helped to to slow that tide as well. You know, she talked to her classmates and she said, look, you know, she's a classmate of mine and I appreciate that, you know, but I, I also recognize that, you know, there are lots of people who don't have classmates and best friends who are doctors and who can speak to their fellow peers, you know, in a very straight way and say that you have to recognize her humanity. I was, I'm grateful that I had. And that's
0: a shame that, that you even have to phrase it like that. And, and for us to be in the medical field, if we don't recognize your humanity, then, then who would, because really and truly that is, uh, Part and parcel of why I think anyone would want to become a doctor, I can't speak for you know every uh everyone's desires, but no it that definitely that's the reason why I thought your your telling of uh your story was so important because there were many times in big and small ways where I felt the medical profession failed you and honestly, that your outcome wouldn't have been what it was if you didn't know people and if you weren't who you are. You are a very forthright, uh, you know, individual, able to speak your mind, able to, you know, not easily intimidated. And and because of those things, I I really do believe your outcome, um, that's part of the reason why you're alive and 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 still doing what you're doing, but um and but this is for all the sisters, all the women out there that that maybe uh, are not maybe they're feeling afraid of using their voice, but mm-hmm. really in the end that's that's all that we have. We have to if we have to scream then we scream, and and if we can use polite language then we use polite language, but using your voice is really, um, a lot of times the only power you have. So I'm glad that your, your, your girls got your back and they told, you know, the rest of us to keep out of your room and to keep things quiet and, and to respect your humanity that, I mean, because you're going through a process. It's not as though it's just you like, Oh yeah, there's, and, and we've been warned about that in medical school that we shouldn't say the liver transplant in 412 because God knows everybody is more than just their condition, right? Everyone is more than just the liver transplant in 412. The liver transplant in 412 is Mr. Thompson. He's a father. He's a, you know, uh, a teacher. He's uh, got kids. He's got a profession. He's, you know he's he's a full human being. He's right. not just the liver transplant. And so, but but we do get caught up. That's all I can say. And I know it still happens.
1: Absolutely. Uh, you know I am grateful that I was able to use my voice when I could. I'm I'm grateful for the people who spoke, who stood in the gap for me when I couldn't use my voice, mm-hmm. uh, in, including my my OBGYN who. Had advocated for me to get a single room. You know, my insurance, my health insurance covered a double, and she said, "There's just no way in the world that she can be in a double room on the labor and delivery floor, um, you know, with a woman who's got a healthy baby in, you know, you know, a, a little uh, bassinet." That just position, right. yes, right. And so I, I am, am grateful for that. Um, but you know, there were any number of times when like I said, I felt that the the curiosity of my case
0: uh
1: overwhelmed many and uh you know made it challenging to be a woman who was recovering and who was struggling with a, a daughter who was not doing well you know um, several fours down in the NICU and you know i'm that was another piece of it, right. It was just trying to advocate for, for what was going on with her and her health. Um, You know, Were
0: they conveying most of the information about Grace's health to you or to Kevin, or did you just feel like you were in a black hole about that?
1: Well, he was able to see her more readily. He would definitely Mm -hmm. take me down to see her. Um, You know, so I would see her um, multiple times a day. I had to be wheeled in a wheelchair And when we asked questions, we would get answers. Um, They weren't always really clear. I I felt like I was asking clear questions and that I was communicating to the medical staff that I wanted to hear the truth. You know, I know that not everybody wants to hear the unvarnished truth, but I did. Um, I did have Mm -hmm. enough of an understanding of what was going on to appreciate what they were sharing. And I would ask questions if I, if I wasn't queer. So, but I, I think that some of the um, medical personnel just didn't really understand that they needed to be straightforward with me. And, I, and on the last day of my daughter's life, she lived for four days. Um, you know, When we had come down to see her in the morning, I could tell she was looking really bad. Um, which is saying a lot because she was hooked up to everything. But I saw the difference between, you know, her on her her first, within her first 24 hours of life and her in her last few hours of life, I could see the difference. Um, Mm -hmm. And I remember talking to the resident who was, who was charged with her care at the time. And, uh, she was being intentionally vague and I knew she was. And I said, look, um i'm not asking you to tell me what you think i want to hear i'm asking you to tell me what i'm asking what the, i'm asking you to answer the questions that i'm asking you whatever that sounds like like i need to hear the answer to the question because you know she was telling me about additional treatments that they were uh thinking about trying and i was looking at you know my little daughter who had become a pincushion. And I was trying Mm -hmm. to figure out if these additional uh, efforts were going to improve her life outcomes or if they were just, you know, that they were just trying to see. Like, at some point, you know, you have to, in in my mind, and this is how I felt, you know, it it can't be about our selfish need. Me as a mother, it can't be about my selfish need to uh, have my daughter live. I have to respect her enough to also recognize that, you know, her life is going to look really different and I don't want to make the life that she has just torturous. Uh, it was unclear to me, you know, what all she was, how she was experiencing her life. You know, i I'll, I'll that'll continue to be a mystery to me, but I, mm-hmm. but to the extent that I could mother her, I have to mother her, not mother myself, and with her as the object of my love, like if that makes any sense.
0: And um, no, it definitely makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And speaking again from the medical point of view, it's we run into so many people that want everything done. And what I try to ask and answer when I'm giving them their options are, you know, what are the chances of success? if we know and you know sometimes people don't like to hear that we don't know the answers because sometimes um that particular combination um of of things happening at the same time we may not have the answer to like we may be able to treat someone with this medicine in liver failure and tell you that if your numbers look like this then you should expect a 50 percent recovery rate but what do the numbers then look like if you have kidney and liver failure? What does it look like if it's multi-organ failure? Because each of those things adds complexity and you're not going to get the 50% recovery. So in a lot of situations, we don't have the answer. And then in a lot of situations, many people always are willing to say, do everything. And they don't understand the caveat of what's the success rate of doing everything are like, are we pro, you know, as they say, are we um, prolonging the, are we just prolonging the inevitable? Inevitable, Are we, are we really um, adding life or are we just prolonging the the march to death? Like, and so, and, and none of us went into medicine because we want to give that news of, your child didn't make it, your mother didn't make it. The, the The death part is for many physicians, the hardest part of our job. It's the hardest part of the job for me. I can right. certainly tell you that. Right. and so it, it's a lot. It's, it's so but when you're asking for a straight answer, you deserve a straight answer.
1: Right, and that's what I needed. And uh, you know, I was asking those kinds of questions because I had done some research, even from my hospital bed. Uh, that's oh, only you,
0: that I, Erica. That's well, only that's who I am, you know. And do I, research because from I wanted your to know, bed.
1: Because I, I, I needed to know. You know, part of I know. what what was keeping me sane was just trying to adjust to the realities that were changing, like hour by hour. And, you know, part of being able to do that just entailed, you know, doing some reading and understanding what I was looking at now, right? It, 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 I knew that I would have to mourn all the things that I thought would be that would never be. But right in the moment, I needed to try to understand how to be the best advocate for my daughter and the best advocate for myself, right? And so um, I, I felt like I, I owed that to her to the extent that I could do it. And, um, and I was thankful that I could do it, you know, at a reasonably high level, I think, but, uh, you know, by asking the right questions and trying to, and trying to get some answers. And I, I just needed to get some answers. You know, I wanted to, um, well, I guess it's important to say that because I had gone to sleep on that operating table, not knowing if I was going to live or die, that really changed my thinking about that this sort of precarious balance between life and death. And uh, I was really close to that at that point, right? I I was two or three, three days out from that at that point. Um, So, you know, as I, as I saw her and I saw, I could, I saw that she was inching closer to death. I was, I had to think about, you know, giving her the best death that she could have. And uh, that's a, a hard thing to think, but it was, that was what I was thinking about. And um, you know, not doing. It. I mean, yes, we we did try all kinds of things. And when they were working, that was good. But when there were brain bleeds, and when there were you know just uh, uh, what do you call it or organ failure, as you mentioned, and before that, uh, um, just I don't know the range of things that that could be happening. The calamity
0: of things calamity that happened. Yeah, now,
1: you know, I had to step back and say, okay you know, she's, she's my daughter and I love her. Um, And I don't want for her to never experience that love uh, from me because she just keeps on getting, you know, infused with yet another, uh, you know, medicine or, or just whatever was going on. So in those, you know, as, as we sat with her, and she was connected to everything. And I knew that she was leaving us. I asked for her to for to hold her. And the nurses uh, in the NICU were really kind in moving expeditiously to make that happen and, and gently and reverently. But I also, it became really clear that they had no space, no physical space in the NICU to uh, to, to cordon off for families who were in, who were experiencing the loss of their child, right? I mean, the, the transition of their child, there was just no space mm-hmm. anywhere in the NICU. So, you know, they brought a few um, partitions around and tried to partition off the space as best they could. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I held Grace in my arms. And when her...
0: And that was the first time you held her?
1: It was absolutely the first time that I had held her. Um, mm-hmm. You know, um, Kevin got to hold her as well The when the I was holding her when all the bells and everything, all the machines started to go off and I asked them to turn them off. I mean, that they could see them. Right. But not not us, because I didn't want for her transition out of this life to be um, that of chaos. I wanted her to at least experience, you know, me holding her and saying I loved her. and And that's what I did. Um, but, you know, what was really challenging, I mean, that in, its, in and of itself was really challenging, but what made it all the more challenging was that, you know, someone pulled open the the partition because they didn't know what the partition was. Someone else had, I guess, come into the NICU and couldn't figure out what that partition was doing there. And so they opened it and then they were like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. You know, but it just, it, it you know, made me realize that there are so many ways in which, you know, death is a part of life. It's not the part that anyone wants to experience when they're in labor and delivery. It's not what they want to experience when they're in the NICU. Everyone wants life, but you know, everyone doesn't get life and we all will die. Like, you know, and we don't all know exactly how that's going to happen or when. Um, So when we are in that space when we're up against death we have to respect it and respect the people who are experiencing it and i realized that that nikki was not set up for that eventuality that we were not the only ones to experience i mean we experienced it that day but there are other parents. Which blows my
0: mind because. It blows your
1: mind, of course.
0: Yeah, because it happens. I mean, it, as you it, not all of those children make it out of that NICU, no. especially for it being, you know, a large academic medical center. It, you know, everyone does not have a happy ending. So the fact that they're. And, and who in their right mind would really want to die with all the bells and whistles and machines beeping and honking. And as you said, you you set in your mind that whatever the commotion of her four years of the short four, four days of life that she had, the transition, you wanted to be peaceful and quiet.
1: Right. As much as we could. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, there were nurses who were really hurting for us, uh, I could tell, because you know, they moved us into a space that they had sort of hastily prepared. It was a a storage closet um, that they had cleared out as much as they could in the just few minutes that we were there with Grace. And they moved us and Grace, who had, was now deceased, um, into that space. And they said, "You can be there as long as you need to." There was a door on the on the room, so you know, no one's going to. And I
0: just want I just want to take a minute again to pause and say major medical center in new york city yes dealing with thousands of birds a year the only space that they had at this time and you know i don't know that what's changed since then at this time was basically the broom closet the the, what we store stuff in we store the utility closet where we keep our gowns and and just our supplies they had to clear that out to create a private room for you, which just um, just seems like yet an, just another slap in the face, like just that 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 we haven't made any plans for what is inevitable, right? In certain circumstances,
1: in so some circumstances, you know, we were we had the time in that in that hastily created space. Um, we were given a memory box, you know, for the just very few personal effects that she had accumulated, right? Her little hat and, you know, her armband or her, uh, you know, things like that. And uh, this happened on day four of my seven-day stay at the hospital. So um, for the remaining three days, I was, you know, a mother to a child who had passed away Mm -hmm. Um, you know i'd had to make decisions about who was gone what i was going to do with her remains and how we were going to you know were we going to have a funeral home i mean just all these questions while i was you know trying to recover and still dealing with well at that point the the when people had heard that the baby passed i think you know some were kind of chastened and didn't come into my room anymore, um, which I was, I guess, grateful for. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I did speak to, um, I don't know what position they have in, in the hospital, but the people who, you know, take the information for the death certificate, they came in and they were talking to me and getting all the information, you know, uh, from me. And I was told, you know, that I would get a death certificate sent to me Um, within a week's time or so. And I said, okay, and and how will I get the birth certificate? And I was told that I was told that um, I wouldn't necessarily get a birth certificate because she hadn't lived for a week. Now, I don't know if that was New York state law. I don't know if that was uh, this person's misunderstanding. I don't know what it was, but that was what was told to me in words. And uh, I was stunned and this really appalled. And I said, that's unacceptable. I said, because you can't issue a death certificate for someone who never lived. And she did live. So it yes, it's true. She lived for four days. It is absolutely true that she was premature and that she never left the hospital. But she did live. She had a name. She had parents who loved her. And we should get her birth certificate along with a death certificate. And we did. We did get one. We did get them both.
0: Good. Good.
1: Um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm grateful to say that, you know, I, uh, Kevin and I have been blessed with two healthy children who are alive and well in this world with us. Um, since uh, after, after um, this experience, it was never determined why I got help syndrome. My subsequent pregnancies were considered high risk for that very reason. I and mean, I was just always in the hospital. I had, um, you know, w- getting monitored in every way, um, possible. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I was, um, on bed rest at points and I did have C-sections for, uh, both of those deliveries, the, the high risk OBGYN who I, whose practice I, um, you know, I, I became a a patient of, um, she was willing to try a VBAC because I I wanted it, but it, it didn't work out. And I realized later that I had so much scar tissue from, you know, the first C-section that it
0: actually,
1: it actually made. Yeah.
0: The first C-section was just, uh, crash. You know, we had, yes. we. I'm saying we, but I was not your doctor. Um, yes. it, it was a crash. You know, we had to do, things had to be done so quickly um, that I could imagine that there's a fair amount of scar tissue stuff because we're working at that point, we're working as fast as possible to save your life and the baby's life. So, what we do in, you know, like a scheduled routine C-section, you know, I'm very meticulous about blood loss. I'm very meticulous about how I'm handling each layer of the tissue. Mm -hmm. Uh, All of those things we can't, that we don't have time for um, when you're presented in an emergency situation like yours was. So the beauty in the struggle is that grace lived. Yes. And that... Um, you were blessed with, uh, two healthy children. Um, you, you know, you, they of course would have been, uh, put you into the high risk category just because you had some, uh, uh, very rare condition happen with the first pregnancy. But what, um, what would you say was your road to recovery, um, in dealing with the, the grief and the loss and, your uh, health tell us a little bit about what that road looked like
1: well you know the the road to grief for those of us who have you know lost people close to us it's it's ugly sometimes um and it was that for for me in Mm -hmm. my quiet moments i mean i it, it took a while to really come to terms with what you said earlier, which is that it, it wasn't really, it wasn't my fault, and um, you know, there's just so much that's not known about how these things get precipitated. But it, it, that was a process to get to that point of understanding. Um, you know, we did uh, have,
0: and I don't service. mean, did you do counseling, or was it just with your family? Was it a church leader, or just? So we personal did, journey, right. Or everything. So
1: it, it was all of those things. Um, you know, okay. we did, we did have a, a memorial service for her that was religious in nature. Um, we did cremate her, um, her remains and we still have them. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we had family and friends come and celebrate uh, her life and the meaning of her life, which I was so grateful that people were willing to, to be there um, for us in that space and cry with us. And, uh, because, you know, to the outside world, there was, there was just no appreciation for the fact that I had become a mother, right? I rolled out of the, of the hospital, not with a baby, but with a memory box and not with Mm -hmm. people saying to me, congratulations, but just saying, okay, get better, or just not knowing what to say. You know, I, um, was, as I kind of healed and started to re-enter the world, I had people telling me that I was chubby. Um, I literally had that happen to me. Um, mm-hmm. And I had to tell, it was a, a woman um, in her 70s who had seen fit to say that to me. And I said, look, you know, um, since you saw fit to say that, I'll let you know that I actually just delivered a baby who died. And mm. it." she was blown away. And I said, you know, okay. So it took her to getting to that point in her life, she had to learn that that story, but, you know, learn that lesson. Um, I, I learned that there's, again, no real space in our society for these kinds of outcomes. Um, you know, there were people who tried to console me by saying, well, at least you didn't really know her. Um, wow. You know, I mean, it, it was pretty extraordinary, the things that people uh, would say I imagine they were trying to be helpful but they weren't actually helpful. No,
0: it certainly wasn't. I, even for my patients that have like a an 8-week loss, I as I said for me cuz I, I I I am a mother, I've been even though I'm an OBGYN, I've I've peed on the stick also. And as long as soon as you see those two lines, you make plans. You're like, "Whoa, it's um two lines and it's june so that means it's going to be you know it's going to be here it's going to be a spring baby or you know you start to make plans you you start to think and even for it being a few cells inside your body you connect uh, uh and so there's never i don't think i don't think from the day you recognize that you're pregnant me me personally i don't think that there's a time when you don't connect with that person that's growing inside of you and all the better. I mean, it's, it's, it's great when it culminates in nine months and you've got the, the bouncing baby, but um, when you don't, you and, and it, I've definitely seen the relief of patients when I say it, I know you connected and I know, um, you started making plans because that's what parents do. That's what moms do. That's what dads do. And it seems to give them some relief and some space because I think even in their mind, they're trying to be like, well, it was just a few cells. It was just, it it didn't get too far. So why am I acting like this?
1: You know, it's, it's funny because, um, you know, I think that, I agree with you, but I also think that, you know, you can have a very complicated path toward motherhood and still experience the loss, right? Because the truth mm-hmm. is that not every pregnancy is planned and maybe not even pre- every pregnancy is welcomed. But if if mm-hmm. a woman chooses to to move forward and to embrace this role that, that she's growing into, then she's going to have a range of feelings, you know, for, for us, for Kevin and I, you know, we are, are happily married and I'm, I'm very grateful for the partnership that we have. We were very early in our, in our relationship then, you know, we weren't uh, married then. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it wasn't something that I was looking for. And I, I and at the time, um, certainly mm-hmm. I was able to receive the the blessing, but, you know, I, I can't say that that was, a goal that we were actively moving forward, uh, moving toward at that point in our relationship. And I think that, you know, for some people, because they saw whatever they saw or they knew, or they thought they knew something, they felt emboldened to say that, you know, well, like, oh, well, kind of thing. And, you know, I'm saying that I'm sharing that because I recognize that there are women, including women who are, who are our peers, right? who may find themselves in a space that they weren't necessarily moving toward at that point. But there they did come to embrace it if that's what they were looking for. and and I and I did embrace um, the pregnancy and, you know, make all those plans. I wasn't planning for it before it happened, but I certainly planned after we learned that we were going to, to become parents, um, and it's important as women of color, right? Because women of color, we all women of all all colors come to motherhood in a range of ways. And certainly, mm-hmm.
0: I think we were saying the same thing, which is basically that once you've accepted the fact that you're going to be a mom or you're going to be a dad, that whether it is two weeks into finding out that you're pregnant or you know, the baby's 36 or 38 weeks, whatever point is once you've accepted that you want to be a mom and you want to be a dad, you do start making plans. And whether it be uh, simple things like clearing out a bedroom, clearing out space for this new person or sending out announcements, um, you make those plans. And so at any point when there's a loss, there is turmoil and, and I don't, and I think that's kind of what you were getting at is that we don't have spaces in our society when see when there are alternative endings, when the endings aren't what we expected. It, it was hard enough on you and your immediate family to have the ending, not be a full term, healthy baby But it it wasn't just the grieving loss of grace. It was also, you know, it seemed like it was hard for you, not just in the hospital, but throughout the the days, the weeks, the months, et cetera, that followed to find a way to grieve that, you know, uh, tell me a little bit about what your difficulties were with society and grieving.
1: Well, the difficulties, and I, I absolutely agree with what you were saying. The difficulty was that everyone expects a pregnancy to yield a bouncing baby girl or boy. And and mm-hmm. don't always it doesn't always happen that way. So when I return to work, right, all the people who I would see in my travels, oh, how's the baby? Well, you know, the baby is deceased. People don't know how to respond to that. Um, and some would respond really inappropriately. you know, they would tell me that God knew best. they would tell me that um, at least I didn't know the baby. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: You know, in their effort to be comforting, they were cutting, right? Um, I am mm-hmm. a person of faith, but at the same time, I don't I, I think that what they were saying is not really the space that, those of us who have had these experiences live in when when we are trying to come to terms with this kind of loss, and uh, it's because society just doesn't understand the all the different ways in which this story can go. You know, oftentimes, and we see this in popular culture, when the minute that a star looks like her stomach is a little bit less flat than it was, you know, a week before the The baby speculation starts to happen. That's wholly inappropriate, right? Women go through so much to become pregnant. Sometimes they're happily so. Sometimes they're not happily so. Sometimes they they the pregnancy continues to you know it's it's natural outcome at the end of nine and a half months, and sometimes it doesn't. And you know, not everyone is trying to have that conversation with everybody. So uh, you know, we have to give some allowances some grace um, using my daughter's name intentionally um, <laughs> you know to those experiences because all of those experiences are real you know you wonder well how did I come to terms with how did I how did I process my grief there were a few things that I did yes I prayed yes I had the memorial service yes I talked to people um, you know professionals, to help me, but I also talked to women. That was the thing that really helped me the most. I am grateful that I have a voice and I can speak and I can write and I did all those things. And in so in my process, I talked to other women. I talked to my grandmother, who at the time was uh, nearly 90 years old, and she told me about the losses that she experienced of uh, two of the nine children that she birthed. And I heard the tears in her voice. Uh, it was clear to me that she, and she even said this, that she really had never spoken to anybody about it. So here she was speaking to her her granddaughter, who was 32 at the time. And this was the first time she had had a full conversation about her experience. I had spoken wow. to so many women in sharing my story, I heard about pregnancy losses at all at so many different points in the process of uh, the losses of of babies and children. I learned stories about people who had tried unsuccessfully to have children, right? There's so many experiences. And that really helped me. It helped me to heal because I realized that I was helping other people to heal. Um, You know, I realized, and the, the phrase that I coined was, that the blessing is bigger than the pain. And that was Mm. something that really fed my spirit, right? That I'm, you know, life can be hard and we can have some very, very challenging experiences, but I was able to use my very painful experience to bless other people and help them in their journey. Right. And hopefully also embolden some people to ask some questions that they need to ask or push a little bit harder um, when they feel that something's not going right in their care. And maybe they could st- uh, stave off the kind of uh, outcome that I had. Right. Because if it had been mm-hmm. caught earlier, maybe it could have been managed differently. Um, so those conversations need to be had. And I'm thankful that I've been able to have them uh, particularly in the first few years after this happened, you know, I talked to a woman, Kimberly seals ours, who's written several books, uh, the Mocha Manual series, but I I talked to her about my experience for her first book. And I'm Mm -hmm. grateful that, you know, for this opportunity to talk again, because, you know, people keep on having babies and not all experiences, right. Not all experiences are going to, be perfect. In fact, nothing really is perfect. And so I'm hopeful that people will hear this, whether they are in the medical profession or not, um, and they'll be able to reflect on their own experiences or the people that they encounter and to really see them as, you know, full human beings who are having a range of experience. They're not just cases. Um, to People can think about how they can respond with compassion um, in the event of some kind of loss, that they don't need to uh, try to paper over it and say, "Well, it, it wasn't that bad because it really was—it was that bad." And yes, we will live through this, but it was that bad, and I'm really sorry. And sometimes we just need to give that space to someone else, just to listen to them and listen to their story and say, "Okay, you know, I'm here and I'm going to hold space for you, um, and I'm going to." Just receive this story, uh, you know those things are just so important I think uh, for us all to learn to do
0: definitely well, you have blessed me with uh, this chance to talk to you and learn about grace and and to learn about um, your you know the the phrase that you said that the blessing is Bigger, bigger than, the, than pain.
1: the pain
0: yes yes because that's really what you've taught us in sharing and and the same way that you said it was talking through through talking to other women that you received the most healing and that that is the real the the heart of the podcast the heart of why i even considered doing the podcast is because as an ob i i am an O B G Y N I'm privileged to listen to thousands of stories and it just was like a light bulb moment to think that maybe through the sharing, um, some type of sharing platform, someone else could be helped. And so I think you did just that, Erica. And I just want to thank you again from the bottom of my heart and uh, just wish the, the best, the best is yet to come still. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this latest episode of Uninhibited. You can find more episodes to download at iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. You can also continue the conversation at uninhibited.community on Facebook, where you can like us and share. And you can continue chatting on Instagram at uninhibited.podcast. Special shout out to Trap Quilo for the beats.